0: Welcome to the Real Estate Hackers Show, where we talk to actual investors who use systems and tech to scale out their business and where they see this all going in the future. Before we get to this week's guest, a few words from our partners and friends of the show. Welcome to the Real Estate Hackers Show, where we talk to actual investors who use systems and tech to scale out their business and where they see this all going in the future. Before we get to this week's guest, a few words from our partners and friends of the show. This show is brought to you by Slate House Property Management. Slate House manages over 3,500 units across the Mid Atlantic, including Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland. Property management is sure not the sexiest industry, but what makes Slate House unique is it was founded by investors and engineers. Slate House has built or licensed over 12 different technologies to improve returns for investors and make better living experiences for tenants. Full-time maintenance guys help work get done quicker at a reasonable price. Slatehouse manages properties for many of the guests on this show and has helped them scale their business while they focus on acquiring properties. For more information, go to slatehousegroup.com, call 717-413-6976, or email service at slatehousegroup.com. Look forward to talking to you. All right. Uh, I'm real excited today. Uh, We have an awesome guest, uh, the Real Estate Hackers podcast show today, Uh, a friend of ours and someone I've learned a ton from over the years, not just about real estate, but also just how to live their life and, and how to be happy day to day. Uh, so, Jerry Horst is in the uh, Real Estate Hacker Studio. Thanks for joining
1: us. Hey, thank you, Chad. Appreciate the kind words. It's awesome to be here.
0: Cool. So, uh, yeah, we're uh, super excited. So, uh, man, I don't even know how to intro Jerry, but I guess, I mean, rather than kind of talk through all the amazing stuff you've done, what I'd love to do is actually start at the beginning.
1: And, okay.
0: Uh, talk about how did you get into real estate to begin with?
1: Well, that's an interesting story as most things in life are. Um, When I was getting out of high school, most of my friends were going into college and they had some idea what they wanted to do. I actually was more a technology guy and I had invented a whole bunch of things. And, And to this day, electronics and technology is one of my driving passions. Most people don't know that because I've it's just a hobby. An expensive one at that. I don't think um, I knew that. No, I'm sure you didn't. Someday I'll, I'll uh, enlighten you on those interesting tidbits of information. Uh, so in any case, I thought, what could I do that uh, I could make some money until I figure out what I want to do? And uh, so I went into construction. I bought some ground, designed some buildings, well, houses, um, built them and sold them. And I uh, Suddenly, I was making more money than any of the kids were hoping to make when they got out of college four years later with a bunch of college debt. So that actually worked out really well. <laughs> That's
0: amazing. Um, did your family, were they involved in real
1: estate? My father was involved as a in construction, yeah. Okay,
0: so you had some background.
1: I did. He, he would help me, you know, if ever I got stuck and what do you do about this? He actually came to work for me like two years out of high school. I had my own company, maybe a year, and uh, he, was, he was my right hand. <laughs> that helped a lot. <laughs>
0: Unbelievable. What a... That's, yeah. I can't even imagine the dynamic. Well, and then, I mean, to fast forward now, you've got a bunch of your sons.
1: Uh, we do. We have four, four sons and at least one daughter working for us, probably one and a half. Obviously, there's not one and a half people, but one and a half jobs.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. how uh, yeah, it kind of trickles down. And I guess maybe someday you'll be their right hand man. Uh, the
1: Hopefully, I'll retire before then.
0: <laughs> cool. So, so you started off by building, basically. I, I mean, I'm assuming just a residential property, right? Not a rental.
1: No, that's correct. Just single-family houses, which I think is where most guys start in construction.
0: Yeah. And uh, and you found you were pretty good at it. So yeah. It was going well. And then uh, from there, did you? Uh, kind of increase into larger developments?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, what happened is, and I actually survived the early 80s when interest went to, my floating line of credit was 21.5%. And at that time, if you could get a fixed house mortgage at 15, you were doing really good. I remember at that time thinking, wow. And this is what most of the guys in our industry thought. They thought, wow, if interest would ever get down to like 12%, the economy would just explode because everybody would be buying everything. Um, that's not exactly how it played out 30 or 40 years later, but it certainly was interesting. So what happened is I, you know, I would buy a lot here and a lot there and, uh, build some buildings on it, usually a couple at a time. And then I soon had enough of a reputation that people were calling me wanting to sell me entire developments. So I would buy a whole development and design five or six different building styles, house styles on it, and, uh, just set in motion, The activities of churning out, you know, five or six homes at a time. Wow. Yeah, it was fun. That's awesome. (laughs) I, uh,
0: it's interesting. I mean, I've done a lot in real estate, but I I haven't personally built new construction, uh, you know, from the ground up. And to, to be, to just envision doing that one to two years out of high school, uh, I mean, just the, excitement that must have
1: been at such a young age. It, it was exciting. And, you know, most people who are probably listening to this podcast have already read the E-Myth book, which was decades ago. I realize that's not new news, <laughs> but I kind of discovered, and this was a long time before that book was written, that I thought in the way that uh, Michael Gerber suggests a business person thinks, rather than as a, uh, a smart employee or a, um, let's say... Uh, a woodworker or a carpenter, you know, so for me, it was, I was always standing back and taking a 30,000 foot view and saying, how can I make this system operate better uh, so that I have to work less? Uh, Some people make jokes about me being excessively lazy. I like to think of it as being excessively efficient.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Uh, It's interesting. One of the things we talk on this podcast a lot about is, um, I think a lot of times people have trouble scaling in real estate. Right. They, they buy one rental and they're just managing that, and it's going well, and then they, they try to scale up. It's, it's kind of a different thing, um, whether that's investing or really anything you're doing in real estate. And I, I think it's really interesting how at a young age, without really having even the foresight of some of these books and all these years of experience, you were able to kind of realize how important systems were. Well,
1: it is. And to me, one of the most important things is like most people who are in in any kind of real estate business, we kind of like the physical thing of the building. And we learn how to fix things. So, you know, if a toilet needs to be replaced or a water heater, most of us know how to do that. I mean, we figure it out. We can go out to Home Depot and have somebody explain it to us and, and do it ourselves. And so, we kind of unfortunately revert to doing that because it's clear it's it's real it's a real thing you can touch it and so it's easier to wrap our minds around that than it is around abstract concepts like business management which is not nearly as real that's a lot more ethereal and until we get to the place where we can take ourselves out of the situation and look at it from a distance we're probably always going to be in there getting our hands dirty there's nothing wrong with getting your hands dirty and it's great to know how to replace a toilet all those are wonderful things but i realized probably my first year of of business i realized that when i was installing kitchens which i love doing because you can do a bang up job in one day and walk away from it it looks incredible And you can go home at the end of the day saying, look at that. Isn't that cool? Of course, we didn't have cell phones with cameras, so you couldn't take a picture and put it on (laughs) Facebook, but you had the good feeling that you did something awesome. But then I realized that when I was on the phone talking to people, making deals, I would actually track my effectiveness. And this is when I was literally 18 years old. So we're going back 50 years, actually more than 50 years. (laughs) But I realized when I was talking on the phone, I was generally making five grand an hour. And I realized when I was installing kitchens, I was pretty much worth $15 an hour. So, it didn't really matter what I wanted to do. What mattered is what made the, what made the most sense. And I'd say the same thing to anyone who's, in, who's as a real estate investor. Value your time. Put a value in your time and understand what your time is worth. And you're actually making different amounts of money for different kinds of activities. So, I highly encourage you to find the activities that make the most out of your gift set and allow you to produce the most income.
0: Yeah, I love that. Uh, it's interesting, I, I, you know, I have a memory. Uh, we uh, we bought a house one time and then, and uh, closed on it, and we had tenants moving in the next day. Mm-hmm. And so, <clears throat> Nate and I walked in, and, and the house still had to be painted. It's like 6.30 at night, tenants are moving in the next day at nine o'clock. There's just, there's no way to hire a painter. And uh, yeah, we just, painted it yourself of course you did right and uh you know convinced the lady across the street to give us the battery-powered lamp to (laughs) you know give us a way to see things and we're going home thinking okay like i learned a good lesson but i think the 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 key lesson was not anything about painting or even like the hard work sometimes you need to do which i I think that's important
1: it is very important
0: uh there's actually another (laughs) lesson which was we need slightly better systems here, yeah. you know, so that I'm not the one that's right. you know right. till midnight painting on a Friday. Night. And
1: we don't want to devalue the fact that you did the hard work. And, and that's the thing about any kind of business activity, particularly real estate investing. Real estate investing is always just full of emergencies and things that we didn't think were going to happen. Uh, you know, whatever happens, and you have to suddenly change all your plans and deal with it. And so, congratulations for doing that. <laughs> uh, but. Having a little experience and seeing far enough ahead as to what might go wrong and having a plan for it, that that helps too. Yeah. As one awesome. of my mentors early on uh, taught me, he said, in, in any kind of real estate activity, it's not if something goes wrong, it's when it goes wrong. Yeah. And so you need to use those opportunities of when something goes wrong to demonstrate to your clients and everyone involved why they're glad that they chose to do business with you. That's awesome. That's awesome.
0: Um So I want to talk a little bit about how, so you now basically focus on building rentals as opposed to buying, building, you know, residential homes. Talk to me about kind of that shift and why you made that shift.
1: Well, certainly that's, that's an easy one, but also happened over a couple of decades. After I started building houses, I, um, I kind of accidentally stumbled on some apartment land. And so I bought some lots for 12 units and began designing and building apartments I found I actually enjoyed it a lot more. And the reason I enjoyed it more wouldn't work for most people who are in the building business. And the reason is because uh, for me, it wasn't about the satisfaction I got of being a craftsman. Now, if you're going to do anything in building, being a craftsman is like first base. If you can't do that, forget it. You're not going to produce anything that's of any value. You're not even going to be able to know what looks good. Uh, if, you, if you're not at least a craftsman enough to know what it ought to look like. Right, right. So that's kind of first base. I'm not disqualifying that, but that's <laughs> first base. But the real thing is to get to the point where you understand how to make systems and how to make them work. And so the thing I loved about apartments is it was kind of like designing a, ma- a uh, manufacturing process because you design larger buildings and the whole process of scheduling and all the parts coming together at the right time and all of the subcontractors and all of the pieces... Everything's about time because when you're dealing with larger amounts of money, uh, then time has a much bigger price tag. Each day is worth a lot more money when you're on, say, a $10 million job as opposed to a $200,000 house. And so I found myself really coming alive to the whole process of developing these systems, the manufacturing systems, the financial modeling. And uh, I kind of became a spreadsheet guru, which I still am today. Yeah, and I've seen some I'm of your spreadsheets. Of, I'm kind I... of embarrassed to say this, but it's like, I know some guys get excited playing golf or doing other things. None of that works for me, but something weird happens in my brain when I sit down on a spreadsheet. It's like, I get yeah. happy. And I- I've that's seen just, this. That's <laughs> embarrassing. I, like, that's just plain
0: weird. Yeah, no, I'm I, i uh, I'm with you. I mean, give me a good model. And I do get excited. But to me, it's like, uh, it's not about the intellectual challenge of, taking real life things whether it be a business or a, or a property or anything and turning that into numbers it is i think is a is a for some i am with you I, I, yeah. I i'm i totally see that and i think some of our listeners probably do too if you're kind of wired the right way i actually like that more than i like the physical space uh, i'm actually not uh, a junkie about fixing toilets or well, yeah, designing uh, cabinets or anything i'm i'm uh to me, it's, it's really interesting to take physical things and turn them into models. Um, so anyway, so so then you built out like a 10-unit apartment complex. You found out you liked well, I built it.
1: Well, I built a bunch of them and okay. and really enjoyed the process. Then, um, that was back when Reagan changed the tax laws, and all of a sudden, people didn't want to invest in apartments anymore because the depreciation went to a straight line, and it didn't have near the, uh, near the draw that it did before that happened. Um, so... I didn't build as many apartments for a while, I I built, uh, I usually would have several um, single family house developments going on at a time. And then in 2001, I bought a commercial construction company. And when you're building commercial, it's all about the investment value of what you're producing. You're either building for a guy who owns a company, or you're building for a guy who owns real estate who's renting it to someone who owns a company or a store or a medical center or something of that nature. So I began to think much more from the perspective of the economics and the financial modeling of what an investment looks like. And then that led me kind of back to apartments again. And so my kind of one of my main things is just the financial modeling of what an investment looks like. Uh, We got very much out of single family houses in 2008, lost tons of money because I owned hundreds of lots uh, at that time. And it was uh, you know, as a, as a friend of mine says, it was going great until it wasn't. <laughs> I mean, we were, that was that was literally churning millions in the background with uh, just on automatic pilot until it crashed into the ground and burned, uh, which was a very painful experience. But I, I decided that I don't really need to build single family houses any anymore anyway. So we haven't done that since then and really don't plan to ever do that again. Uh, but we really do enjoy the whole understanding of financial modeling, and what what a good investment looks like to the investor, and what an apartment looks like to the person who walks in the front door to rent it. Because so many people, it, it doesn't seem like there are a lot of people who have the experience to understand what a tenant is really looking for and what they want to pay for. And oftentimes, guys who are investors tend to be older guys whose tastes are very different than the mainstream of tenants who are going to walk in the front door. So we actually hire young, good-looking people to help us understand how these things work. (laughs) So, Because frankly, I'm not going to probably live in any of the apartments that I'm ever building. At least that's not my plan. Um, So it's important that we're putting things in that people are willing to pay for. So we actually spend a lot of time, effort, and money um, understanding the market and taking a scientific approach of what, what really matters to someone, what they're willing to pay for, and what is a complete waste of money.
0: That's interesting. I I um I think on the residential side of things, I think people do that naturally, right? You know, they 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 are somewhat in tune with what a home buyer wants. But I think on the, for some reason the rental side, I don't think you see it quite as much.
1: You don't. It's uh, it's very odd to me when I walk through other people's properties or even their people bring me plans all the time of stuff that they are asking us to build oftentimes apartments, and I look at it and think, why? Why? Nobody's going to pay for this. You're choosing stuff that costs a ton more that's actually going to make somebody walk away and go to another apartment because it's not attractive. Yeah. And to me, it's bad enough to pay more than you should, but when you're paying more to reduce the value, that's a bad day.
0: Yeah, that doesn't <laughs> make a lot of sense. No. Uh, so interesting. Is there something that comes to mind that you guys have discovered over the last maybe three to four years that you now taking into impact on your designs to make for a better rental experience. Yeah, or
1: one of the questions. as far as design of building, yeah, there's a there's a huge thing and that is uh, we we have a huge goal of making it so that when you open the front door to one of our apartment units, it the wow just hits you. We want to see a big room with open spaces. And so we use a lot of clear span floor trusses in our design so that we don't have interior bearing walls at all in our units. So we can completely lay out a unit in any way that we want to. So when you open that front door, we want to see things that make you say, wow, how'd you fit all this in this box? And literally, I was at one of our projects today, and uh, you open the front door and it's 1,100 square foot, two bedroom unit. You see 54 feet to the other end of the unit. That's about as big as my house, <laughs> <laughs> but it's the way it's laid out and and it's all the open spaces and every little detail is thought through is how's this going to impact the person who's the decision maker, which is most often the the woman in the uh in the rental picture uh so you've got to think about kitchens and bathrooms and light and window placement and all those kind of things but yeah. it's it's outrageously fun
0: ah it's it's so awesome um i uh You've got to be the first person I've ever heard t- talk that passionately. And I, it's really interesting. Now I, I spend enough time with you. I now do this. When I see new construction or I walk into something that's been redone recently, I, I think to myself, what's the wow factor when I mm-hmm. walk in the door? And literally, yeah. I, I'm now, I, I, your words come through. And I think some of our listeners may, if you listen to Jerry enough, you may start to know this too. But it's such an interesting point, which is when you walk in, for better or worse, you make a decision pretty quickly.
1: You do. It either it hits you in the, wow, this is incredible. And then from
0: there, you're kind of talking yourself into right. it. Right. Or, uh, I don't know.
1: Yeah. The last thing you want is somebody open the door and say,
0: "Yeah, yeah. What else do you got? It's okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> if there's nothing else available, maybe I'll rent it. What else do you got? Can you yeah. give me the first month free? <laughs> you're right.
0: Yeah. Um, oh, it's so awesome. I love that. Uh, the kind of that open landscape approach you guys have. Um Talk to me a little bit about um, times. Just a little bit, but so you now you guys also so you obviously build for other investors, mm-hmm. uh, but you also syndicate. We do sometimes, which has got to be a little bit unique, I would think.
1: Well, I guess it is a bit unique. Yeah, we love syndicating. We love the whole process. You know, and to me, one of the fascinating things that I've observed as I've uh, spent so many decades in industry <clears throat> is that so much about your ability and your ability to be profitable is understanding all the legal issues that surround what you're doing, whether it's construction and understanding the building codes, whether it's land development and understanding all of the land development issues and the legal issues surrounding land development. If you you aren't at least half an attorney yourself, it would be hard to know what you should do and could do in any given situation. And so that kind of folds over nicely into syndication, which is completely a legal process and it helps to understand all the legal issues of what you can and can't do, what works, what investors are looking for. And so we spend a lot of time.
0: Plus your modeling,
1: obviously. Well, exactly. Works. <laughs> yeah. So we also spend a lot of time with a lot of the national syndicator people and some of the bigger names in, in real estate, understanding what people are looking for in an investment and how they measure what they get into. Um, I I was amazed. I was just with somebody this week Um may have even been you since I spent so much time with you. <laughs> and somebody was telling me that, um, you know, most people never even see past the cash on cash return. And they just see, you know, so if you invest $100,000 and somebody gives you Seven thousand okay. dollars back at the a, end of was, the year. I
0: was on the conversation, but it wasn't me who said it. It's actually Matt Faircloth who was okay. Saying it. Okay, well,
1: thank you, Matt. So yeah. I see I'm still thinking about that. Yeah. That was yesterday, yeah. wasn't it?
0: Uh, it was this week, but yeah, he was. He made a great point, and I and it's
1: a very true point because I go to a lot of extents to explain the whole financial picture and all of the other streams of phantom income that accompany a real estate deal that don't accompany any other kind of investment. Because actually, usually the cash piece, even though it's usually somewhere around 10%, give or take a couple of percentage points. That's not usually the biggest piece of the return. The biggest piece are other phantom return things such as amortization, pay down, appreciation, and the tax benefits, which are huge compared to the cash on cash return. So it was it's, it's kind of interesting to me that most people, and again, I think the longer someone's a real estate investor, the less this would be true. But most people who are just delving into real estate, maybe for the first couple of years, are looking at that cash check return saying, this is the return. It's only a small piece of the return.
0: Yeah, I mean, I agree. I also wonder if there's some level of distrust of what you call the phantom side of Mm -hmm. returns, which I've never actually heard that term, but I I, I know what you're saying. That's a Kiyosaki term. Okay, okay. (laughs) Uh, but, but, But like, you know, I think sometimes, I think people have been burnt and... Or they get a little nervous when people are raising money or trying to, you know, they're scared of where's their money going. I think, you know, when money comes back, it it feels real. It does. I I know I'm making money because I just got money back, and that's Mm -hmm. good. Um, When, uh, you know, there could be a lot more money five, ten years out, and yet it, I just think there's always a little bit of skepticism, maybe. Maybe that's what, that comes from Well, I think it
1: depends on the... um, um, the professionalism of the investor or the experience of the investor.
0: Yeah. One of, my, one of our real estate agents made a point the other day, which was that um, there's just a lot of people who want to get out of their job. Mm-hmm. And so, he said one reason, that's, he thinks one reason that drives heavy cash-on-cash cash return because people feel like there's a correlation between, you know, if I can get heavy cash-on-cash cash return, I can get out of my job really soon. Um,
1: that's so sad. I, I, <laughs> people listen, if you want to get out of the, your job, get a job you like. <laughs> You know, life ought to be about producing something. It'll be about having the best impact on the world and the people you love and care about, not so you can play golf more.
0: Please, well, that, get a life. That, that's well said. Uh, that, I mean, that, that's worth the price of admission for the podcast <laughs> in itself. Um, I mean, I agree with that. Uh, one of the things I hate, I, 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 whenever I see one of our employees leave the office at like five o'clock on the dot, I get really nervous. And The next day, I try to schedule time with him. Mm-hmm. And it's not because I want them to work till nine o'clock at night. That's not right. it. It's that if they're watching the clock and they're so excited to leave then we're doing something wrong. Yeah. And,
1: uh, they need to be having a great time while they're here. Yeah. That is so true.
0: Um, so that's interesting. Um, okay. So, so you, so to kind of push us all through, so you guys actually do, uh, sometimes you build for other investors, but sometimes you build for deals. You syndicate yourself, Exactly. raise the money. Mm-hmm. Um, I Believe it's actually your um son in law who actually Michael who does yes, we do state.
1: that together mm-hmm. okay.
0: Yeah. Uh, is that a different company? Do you it is. it is a different entity. That is a
1: completely different entity and a different company. Generally, um, construction and, and real estate companies aren't going to hold a lot of assets in their own name because
0: balance of sheet problems and liability. I like you told me before, all kind right?
1: of stuff. Yeah, yeah it's they, just not the way you want to hold it, you want to hold it in a separate entity.
0: Okay, yeah. so you kind of push that over. So it's almost like the syndication is hiring the development company in the same way. Pretty much so. Yes. I mean, of course, that- we
1: disclose that as we're required by syndication of course, law. Of course. Yeah. Uh, any involvement that we have in the projects that we're syndicating, it's not uncommon for us to also own the land and have owned it for years while we're taking it through the development process. So we also have to disclose all of that because oftentimes we kind of, we're involved in every facet of the, the whole process from the time a uh, piece of ground, we first hear about it until tenants are moving in. We're involved in everything that happens there. And so, obviously, we disclose all of that. But that also enables us to do a much more streamlined, straight-line path from ground to cash flowing in.
0: Yeah. I, this is a bit of a nuance, but so Vanguard is the construction company.
1: It is, and a development company.
0: And a develop- Okay. Um, does Vanguard actually sometimes own the land before the syndication um, and buys
1: it? Not really. Okay. And I say not really because, again, it, it wouldn't make sense from a okay. uh, an accounting or tax so they, perspective. They, they find the land. So we find the land and we own it in some kind of an entity. It's not uncommon for us to create an LLC for every piece of ground that we would take down because we don't know, usually at the time that we buy the land, we don't know exactly what the end game is going to be until we've worked our way through the approval process.
0: Hmm. Fascinating. Uh, the one difference in your business that's so different from ours is ours is so in the project management side, I guess, is so much of what we do is very uh, kind of day to day, right? So if we if we get called into a project, usually the project, a lot of our projects, someone's just bought something and they need help immediately or yeah. there's a huge problem and we come in and we are rolling. Um, your timelines are, you know, two to five years out.
1: They're terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely insane.
0: Yeah. And uh, instead, yeah. every time we talk about a new project, I've now gotten better. But I remember the first project we did together and I, you know, I was thinking, okay, so what What do you think? First unit's coming online in a couple months? And there was like this kind of silence in the room. A <laughs> uh, couple
1: months from when? <laughs>
0: yeah. uh, no, Chad, probably more like uh, 20 months if we're lucky, if yeah. everything goes well.
1: Exactly. Uh, yep. uh, which, is,
0: which has got to be a, uh, takes a lot of patience. Um, but it's a great, great experience to kind of see. And it's awesome you guys kind of see everything through as so you're able to find the land Raise the money at times, mm-hmm. put the deal together, and then hold it for maybe years, de- yes. decades. I guess our yeah. our
1: plan is very much long term, and the reason for that is because the economics just get better and better the longer you hold it. Now I know a lot of guys, uh, and again, if you're looking to replace your job and you just want the money, um, you can often get a lot of money um, sooner on rather than later. But you get much more money the longer you stay in the deal. So yeah. we're long term thinkers. We like to think we'll hold it forever, and and frankly. You know, when you sell a project, you're going to have to recapture all of the depreciation of the tax savings that you got because hopefully you didn't lose money. Hopefully you made money. So that means recapture that plus pay additional tax, capital gains tax on the profit of beyond what you spent on it in the first place after you have paid back the tax. And I, and I hate, I've used tax like now four times in one sentence since so you know this is a bad conversation. <laughs> you just don't want to have that conversation. But here's the thing. If you can... If you can borrow your capital out of the project in maybe two to five years, you can get about as much money out of it as you would have for selling it. The only difference is you happen to yeah. still own it. I, I'm, and I'm and really on happy. top of that, you pay no tax on that money that you because pull out through debt, money which money is funds. incredible. It's yeah. like, how can this be real?
0: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally with you. I think one thing I've been really preaching to a lot of investors, even flippers, people who flip houses, is... Mm-hmm. Have you considered, like, just do the math. Before you go to sell it, do the math. Are you sure you want to sell? Because if you can refine it, and it's going to praise that decent value, post-tax, I, many times, I think you're going to get almost the same amount of money.
1: Yeah. And and you won't have to pay any tax on it. So you will get more money in your bank account than yeah. you will otherwise. Yeah, it, it just is incredible. It is. It is interesting. Yeah. I
0: mean, unless for some reason you just do not want to deal with this mm-hmm. problem anymore, which... I think there's times when that's the case.
1: Well, that's when you hire a good management company. (laughs) Let them deal with the problem. That's the whole idea.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. God, if I could just find
1: one of those. They are hard to find. That's for sure. Um, All right. Great. Um,
0: Okay. A couple other questions I had for you. I
1: mean, I... I, Hey, let me... If I can just say something before you go on to your next question, because you had talked about the two years to to five years sometime. You know, it's it's really fascinating. Um, When I got started in this business, you could literally you know, buy a piece of ground, walk into a township office, uh, give them a check for whoever, you know, $100 or something and sketch out where you wanted lots to be. And you're going to put a road down the middle. You could literally draw it with a pencil standing there at the counter and walk out with a subdivided project. That was back in the glory days. (laughs) It ain't nothing like that anymore. So now it literally takes, it would be extremely unusual to get something through in two years. And five years is not unheard of, particularly because most municipalities do not like multifamily. They don't like people. Now, it doesn't mean they they like taxpayers, but they don't like taxpayers who actually live there. And so they like businesses because businesses pay a lot of tax but don't bring a lot of people. People need schools. They need police. They need fire service and all that kind of stuff. And so that's why municipalities are not favorable to housing of any kind. And multi-housing just means more housing in less space and less money for the municipality. So it's a really hard uphill battle. I remember years ago, I was fighting with this uh, municipality for years and years. And our every six months or so, our banker would call me and say, so are we any closer to getting this approved? And I And I would always just tell him what happened at the last meeting. And it was embarrassing because the township, this particular township, was totally corrupt. And and you just couldn't get to first base on anything. And they didn't mind telling you that they were illegal. They were kind of proud of the fact that they don't obey the laws, which is thankfully a bit unusual. But I remember my banker said to me, so, Jerry, if you had any idea it was going to be this difficult, would you have done this when you were young? And I, I laughed and said, yeah, unfortunately, I would have, because when you're young, you think you can do anything. You know, you just don't. You just don't take impossibility as a good suggestion why you might want to go in a different direction. Which is
0: a a benefit and a curse. Well, it is.
1: It's a benefit because if you're not going to attack the impossible, you're just not going to make it happen. And even in real estate investing, uh, one of my sons said to me just just the other week, well, you know, dad, every project dies a thousand deaths. And it (laughs) does. I mean, you come against these roadblocks that are just impossibilities, but you always find a way to break through. Um, it's just that you got to live with the fact that every day you're going to be fighting a different giant and it's not going to be pretty and it's not going to be easy. You know, in the last couple of years, I've had a couple of young guys come to me who were maybe maybe your age, maybe a bit younger, telling me how the township likes them. It's all going to be good and they'll be approved in 90 days. None of those projects have ever happened. Can I say that again? None of those projects have ever happened. So I'm just saying, look, it is... Land development is virtually impossible.
0: What? So let me ask you, this is a good segue. So if somebody is sitting here and listening to this and, and is interested in doing land development, they, they, they have a passion for this. Maybe they want to be the developer, but they want to be mm-hmm. the investor. They want to build a project. Uh, maybe they own some land or they have their eyes on some land. How would you advise them? I mean, how would you, because, you know, I think, I think sometimes the, where do you start? is a problem.
1: Well, they should start by calling me. <laughs> <laughs> That's clearly the best answer. Um, the way we we approach anything like that, it's all about the team. And you need a you need a team of absolutely the best because you're up against impossible odds in getting any kind of multifamily approved almost anywhere. And so you'll need an excellent attorney, uh, several excellent... Um, engineers you'll need a site development engineer you'll need a traffic engineer stormwater management engineer utility engineers and all these guys come with really high price tags for the time that they're going to spend on your project and there aren't any guarantees um there's never a guarantee going in that you're going to get something approved or well, done. do some
0: of them are some of them willing to i don't know what the term would be but i guess defer the cost to if the project gets approved
1: well, think about that. <laughs> that's a great question. That happens most of the time on your PFHA uh, government-funded projects, uh, and of course, when something's government-funded, it really doesn't have to make financial sense. That's just the—that's kind of the side definition of government funding. Makes no sense. Um, so those people, yes, they will do that uh, for payment on the back end if it ever happens. But their fees then are more than. Twice what would normal fees be? And they have to be, because when you think about it, it's just like, um, take this for instance. Um, most builders are working are working as what is called bid spec. In other words, they will bid on a known specification for a project. And if they get one out of 10 jobs that they bid on, they consider that pretty good odds. Um, we don't do bid spec, and the reason we don't is because we don't have a room full of bidders. Uh, because... If if that's your model, then you've got to have 10 times more bids than you have work. And guess what has to pay for those 10 bids? Dork. The one work that you get. Yeah. And so it seems like a great process. Doesn't work out so well for the guy who's actually writing the check at the end of the day. And the same thing is true of what you're suggesting. You probably can get somebody to sign up for that. Their price is probably going to be two to four times what market value is for that service because there's a big risk what right. if it doesn't happen and there's an even bigger risk and the bigger risk is that they're not the one who's in the driver's seat controlling the process so they really don't even have a vote in whether or not it's going to go through
0: yeah that's interesting so basically i mean what you are saying is there is this i guess you call it like at risk money mm-hmm. know, maybe there's a more a different term for it but yeah. you got if you're looking to get in this process you know and i guess you can probably de-risk the project in different ways but you 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 need to have and i don't know what the number is 50k 25k some, some money set aside as at-risk money that you're willing to put up knowing this money is going to be used to basically get this thing
1: through approvals. exactly now when we do something and this is how we would advise anyone we we lay out a plan for the whole duration from where we are today to what it would look like to have total plan approval And all of the steps along the way. And we carefully put them in the right order so that we spend as little money as possible to get to the next step. Because whenever you get to the step that you know you can't take it forward, you want to have spent as little money as possible. So that's a science in itself. And we build whole financial models just to make sure that you're putting as little at-risk money as possible to get to the next steps without slowing down the process.
0: And you guys have, I mean, some projects we've seen with you, a lot of projects actually, are already... I guess we call it pre-approved.
1: Well, we wouldn't call them pre-approved. They would just be approved. approved. They're either approved or, or right. So, or you, so not you're
0: approved. already kind of through a lot of mm-hmm. that risky stage where you know it's approved yeah. for the, a certain reasons.
1: The biggest risk is zoning, and and here again, you know, we all think that municipal planners should think like we do because we're business people, and you know, we see something, we make an intelligent choice, and bam, it happens, and that's how life should be. They don't think like that. That's why they're <laughs> that's why they're not business people. You know, so when you look at a piece of ground and something worthless is happening on it, I mean, it could be anything. And you think, wow, we should put a nice business here or a nice apartment building or something. And you just think the whole world's going to think that's a great idea because it makes all the sense in the world. And it it really does make all the sense in the world. But your chances of getting that rezoned are almost zero. They are so low, in fact, that in my whole Career, which has been a very long time. <laughs> I'm trying to remember any professional developer who who tried to get something rezoned. Now we actually did get something rezoned just two weeks ago or maybe three, which was unbelievable. And it worked? We got yes. Well, it was the second time around. We got blown out of the water a year or two ago uh, for just for foolishness. Not our foolishness, you understand. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we actually had Lancaster County Planning Commission give us a recommendation on, I think it was a Monday or a Tuesday afternoon. The township um, commissioners gave us their recommendation that same evening, and the township supervisors approved it the next week. So we were one week, we, we went through all three of those that normally you wouldn't get in 10 years. You're doing something and, right. Well, that was, we had a very excellent team and a good project. And once we had a couple of years to have uh, explained the impact to the whole community, to everyone involved, um, I was very, very happy to see that people did get on the same page. And say, okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. We understand what you're saying. But it's a, it's a crazy battle.
0: Um, I'm sure you had lots of great things happen, some frustrating moments any anything come to mind that was just really frustrating <laughs> just like one of those... well
1: a lot of stuff is really frustrating <laughs> there's nothing more frustrating than uh, than the development process when you're sitting in a room full of people and there's an angry mob usually of hundreds of people who don't make any sense and they aren't even saying anything that's true or even related to what you're talking about. They're making stuff up or they had a bad dream or they saw something <laughs> on TV or a movie of an evil land developer, you know, or, or something. And so all these things come to mind and people just behave unbelievably badly. Oftentimes there's police, armed police in public meetings when land development is being discussed because there's that much emotion in the room. So oh it's like, and you walk out of there thinking, oh my God, these people actually vote. <laughs> you know, so what is going to happen to our country? This is the, this is the voting base, and right. so there's no intelligence in the room.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess that, that mob mentality is so dangerous in everything. Right? It is. And I guess in this yeah. world, too, you must... Do you find that commercial is harder in that sense? Actually,
1: commercial is easier. Multifamily is probably the hardest.
0: Interesting. That yeah. People just have a negative... They it's do. Weird. I mean, I look at your projects, and they're they're so well done. It brings in... Great people, mm-hmm. you know. It does that. It's such the. It's actually not at all. And there's no negative impact at all. I mean, it's a it's a great thing you know, for the community. Yeah, uh, I believe it. You know, and and um, uh, it's interesting that just it still has this kind of negative taste in the um, for the public that it, for some reason it just stirs up all these emotions. Well,
1: I think the biggest thing is people are fearful of what they don't understand and can't control, and and it's a natural human trait not to like change. And so, you know, some changes are big changes, and when somebody puts a building in your view where you used to drive to work every day and there wasn't a building, that's a crisis for some people. It's, yeah. it's not for me. I like seeing improved, um, you know, to me, the whole idea is the, the word development really has a really negative connotation to a lot of people. But when you think about it, to develop something is to take something that was worse and make, and make it, it better. I mean, to me, it's like a no-brainer. <laughs> um, and not only that, that happens to be what I do and like it a lot. So that I'm sure has some influence on my thoughts.
0: I I kid you sometimes that when I talk to you, you um, you seem so at peace and calm. Yet you're running what is clearly a, a a company that can be very stressful. Developing land, lots of trouble along each all these different uh, ways of looking at it. You've got your family dynamic, a bunch of your sons and daughters, in the company working major, major projects, major money. How? Um, just I don't know. I guess give, give me and our, and our listeners a how do you how do you maintain? I'm sure you've learned this over time. There's just this inner peace and calmness that is just so striking every time I meet you. Well,
1: that's a fascinating. That's a fascinating question, but it's a very spiritual question because it's not because of education. I, I read a lot and. Um, um, you know, to me, one of the most important things is developing who I am inside, because that's what that's what you're experiencing, and that's what you're noticing. And incidentally, that's why people want to do business with you, because they they have a sense of who you are inside, and that's so much more important than than what you do and what you know, because everything about our lives flows out of who you are inside. And I'm I'm actually a very spiritual person. I actually am also an ordained, ordained minister, yeah. which has been my passion. I don't do that for tax reasons or for any other kind of money reasons of any kind. Yeah. I do it because it's our passion. My wife is also an ordained minister. And we, uh, uh, our, our walk with the Lord is extremely important to us. My wife and I, for many, many years, get up every morning and spend quite a bit of time uh, talking together and praying together. And we actually have communion together every morning. That's an important part of our, our morning activity. And so we feel like I'm at peace because I feel like the Lord is with me. And there's nothing I'm going to experience today that he hasn't already thought about and has a better plan than I could make up if I knew what was going to happen next.
0: That's awesome. Um, what a what a thoughtful answer. Uh, and and one, I guess, you, you probably entered before, but I, I, that was not actually, I didn't know what you were going to say, but I, talked, I definitely was a little surprising. But I think it's so interesting that... Um, think whether it's, whether it's faith or, or anything, being at peace with yourself is probably a huge key to decreasing stress.
1: Because we all know that whenever someone walks in a room, and we're in that room, no matter who else is in that room, when someone walks in, the atmosphere changes spiritually. Because we all carry something with us. Yeah. And we'd like to think that we can fix our hair and put on our makeup and, and appear however we want to appear. And there's some truth to that. But there's an important part to preparing our spirits to walk into a room. And what people are going to experience in our presence is all about who we are and what we bring into that room.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, do you uh, you, do you work with a bunch of your kids and your daughters? Uh, what's that been like?
1: That's been awesome. My kids are like the best people in the world. And I have traveled the world and have friends all over the world, which are some of our greatest treasures. But our, our children are really our greatest treasures in life. So,
0: I mean, I, I know a lot of investors are trying to do something that's multi-generational. And I hear I hear oftentimes people talk about things like, I want to pass this down through generations. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're one of the few people I've seen who um, not just pass investment wealth down, but try to pass actual companies and entities down Mm -hmm. and create structures, not just passed down, but actually create something that they can thrive in, which I love, I I think that's so awesome. You don't have to, you don't force them to join you, I assume. No, not at all.
1: I I always tell them, look, you're free to do whatever you want to. And the last thing I want to do is is even entice you to do something that is not your calling, your purpose or your destiny, because that'll never bring you peace. That's not where you want to be. But if you want to do this, I can help you. And it could be a lot of fun and we get to do it together. So that's what we do. You know, one of the things that's the most, the highest goal and value that uh, my wife and I have is to create um, in our children character that would be worthy of stewarding large, vast sums of money. And so creating that character is more important than leaving them the money because we all know, and it's kind of, it's it's well known in America that a ridiculously low number of uh, people who inherited wealth are even in possession of it 10 or 20 years later. And it actually destroys people if they don't have the character to carry the wealth. And it's just a completely different mindset to create wealth than it is to spend it. And the problem with leaving large sums of money to your children, if you haven't prepared the character, is that they will just simply learn to spend that money. When it's gone, they're completely helpless. They have no idea because they've never walked through the process or developed the character of creating wealth. So to me, developing that character is more important than than giving the money. But having developed the character... We want to leave them as much as we can, so that they can expand that far greater than yeah, we can. That's
0: amazing. I'm going to actually push you just one step further. Um, could you give? It, I mean, first of all, I just, uh, I'm so I have a daughter. I I take too hard what you said. Right? I mean that's mm-hmm. awesome. I think that's really great. Um, how do you? Could you give maybe like a practical example of that of how you actually like? I, I mean, I, I love the goal. Mm -hmm. Right. And what you're trying to do. Could you give me a good example of how that plays out?
1: Well, when our children are young, we didn't give them a lot of money. Um, We would let them earn money and we'd encourage them to get jobs working with other people. We wanted our kids to learn what finances were like in the real world and what was expected of them. Um, One of our sons told me about a month ago, Mark, who you know well, said, you know, when I had my first job, I was working for a concreter and you had always taught me that um, um, if if you're the kind of person who sees what needs to be done and goes after it without being told, you'll be the boss. But if you're the kind of person who needs somebody to tell you what to do, you'll always have a boss. <laughs> and he said, so one of my goals in life when I was working for this concreter was if he ever told me what to do, I felt like I had failed that day. So he was always looking ahead to see what he could do next. So consequently, he thinks like an entrepreneur because awesome. that was a habit that he developed at his first job. And I wasn't even there. That's great. Um so I also expose my children to various books. You know, sometimes we'll uh, buy books and distribute them to the whole family and tell them we're, we want to hear what they learned when they read it. And, you know, funny thing is they all read them and love them because I don't give them junk. I, if <laughs> if a book didn't change my life, I'm certainly not going to buy it for somebody else. And if we can't have a con- a uh, an intelligent, encouraging conversation about the book, you know, why waste your time reading it? So I get them to read a lot of books.
0: Could, could and, you guys, do you have a... Uh... let's take maybe like a Kiyosaki off the table. Mm -hmm. Is there a book of choice that comes to mind that you've recommended to your kids? There are
1: so many books of choice because I I know you're a big reader. I am a big reader. It's not uncommon for me to be reading four books at a time, but sometimes just two or three. Um, The latest books um, that have absolutely blown my mind, there's there's one by a woman named uh, Dr. Caroline Leaf called uh, Switch on Your Brain. And it's absolutely amazing. She's a neuroscientist from South Africa and uh, her studies on understanding how your own brain works. See, here's the thing. We all realize that we experience everything in life because of something that happens between our ears. But very little of, of us have taken the time to understand what's happening between our ears and how does that change our reality and how does that change our response to things And just to be able to understand the neuroscience of how your own brain works and to understand that you actually have the capacity and the ability to change your whole neural network and your mental functions, you can clearly become any kind of person that you want to become. And the person that we are is a result of the choices that we've made, mostly the choices of how we're going to think. And so when you take a step back again and and look at, well, how is my brain functioning and what could I do to make it function on a better level? And I'm not even talking about having a higher IQ, although that's a byproduct of it. I'm talking about make, being able to make the choices. of Why is it that two people look at an, an opportunity? The one sees an opportunity, the other sees the work. And it's work for both of them. But the one seizes the opportunity, turns it into a huge pile of wealth. The other one sees the work and says, I think I'll go watch TV. <laughs> you know, Those are brain function items. Yeah. You know, So what if you could change the brain? of the guy who thinks it'd be better to watching TV, to think it would be better to change the world, to do something productive and creative, and to have an impact and to create wealth, that would have a lot of value. So that's why I Switch on your brain. Switch on your brain. It's an amazing book. It's great. Uh, And I'm reading a book right now that uh, since since I got a chance to cut you off there, (laughs) uh, you were asking about, uh, you said you made a comment about wealth and the generations. It was about six months ago. It occurred to me that, um, you know, most people in this culture, in almost all cultures, understand that whatever you leave to your children is going to be wasted or possibly make them worse than if you had left them no money. And I'm, I'm always saddened when I hear that from anyone, uh, because um, it's kind of true from statistics concerned, except there's one group of people for whom that's not true at all. And that would be Jewish people. And as you know, I'm not Jewish, uh, but I have a lot of appreciation for the Jewish mindset and Jewish faith. And so I I actually emailed a bunch of my friends who know Jewish people, and I asked them, can you recommend a, a, Jewish, a book by a Jewish author on generational wealth? Because Jews think differently. When a Jew passes money to the next generation, it multiplies by 100 times by the time that guy's done with it. And it continues doing that over... Hundreds of years. It's amazing because they think differently. And this gets back to the neural network. What's happening between your ears? They process reality differently. So you know what? None of my friends were able to answer that question for me. I was very frustrated. I wrote to several of them say, hey, come on, tell me a book. You know, and I, I got nowhere with them. So I Googled it myself and just, I was one night just I'm thinking, I got to find a Jewish book on generation. Some people wealth.
0: go to the bar, or have some drinks. Yeah. Some people go golf. Not so much. You're sitting there Googling... How do, does the Jewish faith figure out how to pass through generational exactly. wealth successfully?
1: Exactly. So I found, this, I found this book by a Jewish rabbi. He's actually a rabbi. His name's Rabbi Daniel Lapin. And anything you can read or listen to by him is mind-blowingly awesome. So he wrote this book called Thou Shall Prosper, The Ten Commandments of Wealth. Are you, did you read it? I'm I'm in the middle of it. Good so far? I think one of my kids beat me to the end already. <laughs> yes, it's it's absolutely right redefining my concepts of wealth and business and all kinds of things.
0: It's amazing. That's awesome. I think, uh, I actually do think it's going to strike a nerve with a lot of our listeners because I know I, look, I, I didn't come from wealth. Uh, my, my parents were me school either. teachers. Um, I mean, I wasn't living on the streets. They were, they did my Mm -hmm. parents were amazing If they listened to this mom and dad love you guys. But, um, they, they sure didn't know real estate and, um, they, you know, they were not multimillionaires. Um, and so I I do worry as I think about raising my own children, not that we're multimillionaires, but that, you know, just be, how do you be careful that someone still has the work ethic and some of the things Mm -hmm. that are, you know, I think are required to, be successful. And how do you pass those things on through generations regardless of success? Well, this
1: is your opportunity. You've got to actually do that before they hit puberty because um, everything changes then. (sighs) So it's kind of interesting with children. They kind of worship the ground you walk on until they hit puberty because you pretty much are God to them. And I don't mean to be sacrilegious in saying that. It's just reality. What what dad believes and knows, that's reality for the planet. Yeah. Uh, once they hit puberty, it's kind of funny. Some chemicals get released and that whole thing goes upside down. And, and after puberty, man, you got to earn every ounce of respect that you get. So I said all that to say, you need to really invest in your children when they're young. hugely when they're young by making memories with them, by introducing them to amazing concepts and amazing people. We have, uh, my wife and I have uh, more than anyone else we've ever known we've brought the most amazing people we have met throughout the whole world to be guests in our home. Um, I've had vice presidents of comp- of countries stay with us. I had guys, many guys have flown in, in their own jets to the Lancaster airport to stay at our house. Amazing. And and our kids got to converse with them and ask them how life works and hear about their story. How'd you get started and all that. And so I don't think any of my kids have any sports heroes or any movie star heroes because that's, that's I just won't even comment on that because <laughs> um, that's not going to get good. Um, <laughs> but exposing your children to people who are world changers and who understand world economies and who understand how life really works. Yeah. That's, um, awesome. that's like the most powerful thing. At least then you've laid out a picture of what it can look like. The school system isn't going to help them at all. I'm I'm sorry to say that our school system is primarily designed to create factory workers for people who understand how life on the planet works. And you don't want your children to be those factory workers. You want your children to be creative geniuses who walk in the image that of God, that God created them to be creators That's and awesome. to create realities, businesses, real estate, all kinds of things.
0: Man, I mean, whenever I hear you talk, you are incredibly motivating without even trying to be. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's awesome. Um, there's one more topic I kind of want to talk about, and that is, look, you've seen so much in real estate. You've seen high interest rates low interest rates you've gone from residential to rentals as you look to the next five years i mean you know me well enough. i am really into tech i'm into Mm -hmm. thinking about where the world's going um really passionate about trying to associate myself with with people who think that way when you look at the next five years of and you can take this wherever you want either in real estate or in development or in the business you work in what are some things that you're maybe excited about or intrigued by that could be changing over the next five years?
1: Well, I'm really excited about the whole syndication uh, legal structure right now. It's better, I think, than it had been like up until maybe five years ago. And with the uh, SEC exclusions now, it makes syndicating much easier for guys like you and I to put together a project and to bring in money from other investors. I think more and more money is going to continue leaving Wall Street because I think everybody feels... The pressure that we're very much at the top of the market. So there's only one direction that that can go. And uh, with, with, uh, with any kind of stocks and SEC regulated investments, you're completely out of control. You're just a watcher. And when it happens, it's done. There's nothing you can do about it. Whereas with real estate, you can see what's coming and what's happening for years. I think real estate is going to hugely become the investment of choice for for more and more investors over time. Um, I think the returns are going to continue to go up. I believe that interest rates are going to continue to fall, which is shocking because they're the lowest they've been in my entire lifetime. And they're still falling, which is amazing. I'm which...
0: pause you there. So you, I mean, a lot of people think interest rates in the future have to go up. And you're kind of saying, I don't buy that. I actually think I, I'm
1: thinking they're going to go down. Yeah. That's interesting. And yeah, it is. And, and of course, that puts more pressure on real estate deals. Uh, but it that means the price goes up. Um, it's great for real estate. It is. It's absolutely great for real estate. Uh, one of the things as far as construction, there's not a, an awfully lot that's happening technologically-wise in construction. There's, of course, all of the electronics and, and Wi-Fi and integrated uh, metering of utilities and, and thermal controls and energy controls and all that kind of stuff, and that'll continue to develop, and that's all really cool and great stuff. Uh, structure of buildings hasn't changed that much over the years. I mean, there are a few things like uh, SIP panels and different kinds of of uh, structural systems, but they're they're not huge changes. Um, I think you're going to see more and more um, efficient designs and uses of spaces, uh, and more open spaces and and larger spaces. Uh, people live differently than what they did before, and and as people are are not as much in families as they used to be. People are looking for places to congregate with other human beings more than maybe what used to be designed in architecture like 20 years ago. So I think in, in larger projects, of so hundreds of units, you're going to see more centralized communal spaces. Uh, that's a, a very good thing. So there's lots of design issues that are constantly changing. Um, yeah, not sure what else. I could say. No, no,
0: it's fascinating. Uh, I, I
1: wish I could say that development was going to get easier and easier, but it, it for my entire lifetime, it has become exponentially more difficult to the extent that you wonder is now. Is true? Oh, my goodness. Absolutely.
0: Because of regulation?
1: Be, all because of regulation. Okay. It's okay. 100% because, because of regulation. Because I would regulation. think the,
0: the tech systems and structure and being able to work with other subcontractors, I would think that would actually make it a little easier.
1: Well, that makes the construction part easier. That, In, in fact, you know, our subcontractors, they log on to our Our website with a code, and they can get all the construction documents. They don't even have to come into the office. So that's very easy. Uh, But getting the approval is very, very difficult uh, because the regulators are not interested in making this easy or reasonable or anything.
0: Right. It's just so, I guess, politically, it's just not a very
1: positive topic. It's not positive at all. But there are countries where it is. This just isn't one of them. And there are places in this country where it is more favored than others, obviously.
0: Jerry, it's just a, uh, man, Oh, I, uh, I think I'm going to need to listen to this a couple times just to kind of take <laughs> it all in. Uh, it's so awesome to hear you talk. Um, first off, we're going to have a real estate conference here in April. We, we, do you want to come? I would love to come.
1: I, I plan to be there. You bet. All right. Sounds really awesome.
0: Yeah. We're going to have a couple of your uh, sons there talking. Well, that'll be cool. I'm sure you'll be in some form speaking or have a vendor presence or something and somehow you'll be around the conference which is you awesome bet. people can meet jerry in person um our conference is in april 2020 that's exciting um thanks so much for joining us
1: oh thank you the pleasure was all mine
0: really great and uh if people want to reach out to you what's your kind of preferred uh
1: email is a great way to get a hold of me i'm okay. Jerry Horst at uh, you know what? My easiest to remember email address. I was gonna give you my Vanguard email, and that's fine, but you remember it easier, jerryhorst at gmail.com.
0: There you go. Jerryhorst at gmail.com. If you wanna reach out to Jerry uh, I don't I mean, no matter where you are in life, in real estate, uh, I hope I hope you can have the pleasure to know Jerry as I have. Um, well,
1: great, thank you, Chad. It. I appreciate those kind words.
0: Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Real Estate Hackers Podcast and show. We'll be uh, back on the air next week. Thanks again. Thank you. So that's our episode of Real Estate Hackers. Thanks for joining us in your real estate investing journey. We come out with fresh new episodes weekly. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And if you would, let your fellow investors know about us. Also, if you've ever hacked or found a unique solution to an issue in the real estate space, hit me up. We may even share your real estate hack on a future episode. Check out our site at realestatehackers.com, on Instagram, at realestatehackers, or email me directly at chad at realestatehackers.com. Real Estate Hackers is an On Air Brands production. Huge thanks and shout out to Eric and the team at On Air Brands. Be sure to check them out at onairbrands.com. This is Chad Gallagher, your host of Real Estate Hackers. Hope to see you at our next meetup or live event. And who knows, you may even be the next guest hacker on our show. See you soon.